Um, we are so happy to have you here today when it's a little drier uh, and uh, we are here just to worship God uh, as we do every Sunday. Uh, one thing I wanted to say uh, just a little bit further about Mother's Day. Um, yes, we celebrate mothers. We celebrate those who gave us life. We celebrate those who gave us sustenance and provision and guidance and teaching. Um, and sometimes we forget that there are people uh, women who just greatly desire to be mothers and for, for whatever reason, health reason or otherwise, they just are not able to be mothers. And what I want to say to you is this, uh, especially in our church, and I mean not our church, but our church, uh, one of the things that I always encourage for men and for women is to care for the children in our church. Everywhere from, from, from newborn all the way up through age 18 and beyond, uh, you can be mothers, you can be fathers uh, to these people. Because I got news for you, and I think most parents will attest to this, we can't do it on our own. And as much as we hate to uh, you know, listen to certain politicians say certain things, um, it does take a village. It takes a lot of people to raise a child up in the way that they should go. And it's not just the mother and the father. Yes, they're the primary people. But it is the church. It is Christian people who are willing to give of their time, who are willing to give of their uh, talents to help our children to grow into the people that God wants them to be. So I just want to encourage you this morning, even if you're not able to be a mother, you're able to be a mother to a child in our church. Over the past couple of weeks, we've been uh, walking through a sermon series called Building a Disciple. And we've talked about what it means to be a true disciple of Jesus Christ, what it costs to follow him. And, and we've seen this idea of what uh, a firm foundation means for building up our spiritual lives. And we know that those, that foundation is Jesus Christ, and particularly the things that he said and the things that he did in the Gospels. And when you go to build a house, and we've been talking about this in the way of, of kind of building houses, and when you go to build a house, especially a custom one, um, you start with plans. You start with blueprints, right? You have this this thing drawn out or these pictures drawn out for what you want the house to look like and how you want the house to function. And those plans are drawn up by an architect. And the architect is the person who creates the design for whatever new construction uh, project it's going to be. Or he creates the design for any kind of maybe renovations or alterations uh, to what already exists. And these designs are made so that the house looks the way that you want the house to look. It functions the way that you want it to function. And most of all, that it is safe, that it does the things you want it to do without killing you. And of course, you know, they also work on the aesthetically pleasing parts of that. But mostly we want a functional, safe house. And without the architect's plans and drawings, nobody who works on the house 
has any idea of what it is that they're supposed to be doing. If you went into a, a construction site, for example, and you just kind of walked up, you didn't look at the plans, and you just started working, things are going to be put in the wrong place. Things are not going to work the right way. Things might not be safe. So all of the workers, all of the people who work on that house have to know what that plan is, or at least the part of the plan that they have to work on. So after the architect puts his finishing touches on the drawings, and you've seen pictures of you know, the architects and these big tables and they're doing their drawings, he takes the plans and he hands them over to the contractor. And the contractor is the person who does the work. He arranges for the plumbers and the electricians and the drywall people and the roofers and the framers and all of these people that come together to build the house. And when we're talking about building a disciple, we're talking about building a spiritual house. We're talking about Building a person who will follow Jesus Christ. A person that will follow Jesus' teachings and his commands and do the things that Jesus tells us to do. And when we look at the spiritual house, God is the architect. Jesus is the plan. And the Holy Spirit is the contractor. And we're going to talk about what that looks like today. God is the architect. He is the grand designer of all things necessary for us to live. Did you know the entire universe was created so that it could sustain us? So that it could sustain life? And particularly human life? In Genesis chapter 1 and 2, we read of God's creation of the Bible. And we start out right at the beginning in Genesis 1.1. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. And in your bulletins, um, I had Dana print out uh, a picture. I don't know if any of you, some of <laughs> I saw some of them falling onto the floor as people were walking in. So uh, you, hopefully you have this. And I actually um, printed out a really nice big uh, version of this and then drowned yesterday at the Invitational. So I, uh, by the time I got home, we just didn't have time to put it together. And I apologize to my wife, Wendy, for starting the print job while she was sleeping. Uh, but... <laughs> In your bulletins, you have this picture, it's, and the, the picture is called God the Geometer. The geometry, geometer. And this picture was created in 13th century France, and it was for something called the Bible Moralisé, or the Moral Bible. And basically what would happen is these Bibles would be commissioned by royalty, royal families, or very, very rich families. And what they wanted is they wanted something that they could show their children to kind of uh, be an illustration of what the Bible was saying, right? And now, of course, today we have those illustrated 
children's Bibles, right? Anybody have an illustrated children's Bible for their kids? Um, we got the, uh, the Action Bible, which uh, it kind of looks like a comic book almost. Um, but we have these things to help us kind of visualize at least what the artist thinks the Bible is, is saying. And some people call this uh, not God the geometer, but God the architect. And some of the details in this, in this picture, if you look closely at the details of this picture, one thing I noticed uh, right away when I saw this uh, is that it's painted like it's a painting that's already hung on the wall. So you already have the frame painted as part of the picture. And then you have the geometer, God, stepping into the picture. Second thing I notice is that God is using an instrument of precision. Anybody, ever, anybody ever use a compass? Of course we did, if we're old, right? <laughs> yeah. The compass is an instrument of precision. We're supposed to be able to draw um, drawings of things with this compass and measure things out precisely. And I can't help but thinking as I look at this particular artist's rendering of who he thinks God is, is that God is this person who steps into the painting. He steps into time. And that's what we believe, that God is transcendent of time. God is outside of creation, and here he is taking that step in. And he uses this great precision in creating the universe. And we see in Scripture, right after, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. And we see, I'll turn this back on, we see that God creates light, and he says, let there be light. And we read of God separating the light from the darkness. And of course, we read the creation account, and we see the obvious physical attributes. Everybody, anybody ever walked into a dark room and flipped on a light switch? Then you know the difference between light and dark. Those are the physical attributes of light and dark. But what God did is God created light and darkness in such precision. He created the sun and the moon and the stars and the earth and the water and everything just right, with just the right measurements so that we could survive, so that we could live on this planet called Earth. But we see these physical attributes of light and darkness. But we also can think about the spiritual side of God creating light and darkness to be separated. Right? Genesis says he separated the light from the darkness. And in our spiritual lives, God wants to separate the light from the darkness when he created humanity. His intention was to create spiritual light. We call it good. 
And even though Adam and Eve sinned, the original intention was to fill the world with this spiritual light. God didn't want Adam and Eve to know spiritual darkness yet. God didn't want Adam and Eve to know what spiritual darkness was all about yet when he created them. God knew it was there. God knew that there was light and that there was darkness. But God wanted to present that spiritual darkness in his own way, in his own time, so that Adam and Eve could understand it. So that Adam and Eve could know that the light is good and that the darkness is bad. But the serpent, of course, succeeded in convincing them that they should know about the darkness. Hey, look over here. There's something else. There's this darkness over here. God doesn't want you to know about it. That's why he put that tree in the middle of the garden. And he said, don't eat of that tree because when you do, you'll know the difference between good and evil. God doesn't want you to know everything. God wants to hide these things from you. What kind of God would do that? You know what kind of God would do that? The kind of God that doesn't want you to be like him. That's what Satan says in the temptation. God knows that if you know what the darkness is, that you will be like him and you will know everything. And Adam and Eve believed that. It never ceases to amaze me when I think of this passage and I think of God attempting to protect Adam and Eve from knowing things too soon until they are emotionally, spiritually ready to know what God knows. And I think of these people who talk about our children and they talk about the things that they're exposed to in the world and many parents... How many of you parents try to protect and shield your children from the bad things in the world? Anybody? Wendy and I, we would shield our boys from some of the things, some of the, the, the most unpleasant things that were happening in the world because we knew they couldn't understand it. And if we burden ourselves with knowledge that we can't understand bad things can happen. And we prayed and we still pray that, that our children will choose good. Right? Even though Tommy's almost 19, Josh, 15 years old today, they get to make their own choices. And we pray that they choose good. And I don't believe that God intended for his children to never know what evil was. I think God wanted them to know what evil was, but he intended to teach them in a way that helped create a spiritually strong light of a house. He did it, or he wanted to do it in such a way that when the time came, they would understand 
what evil is, why evil is, and they would have a better basis to select good. And Satan didn't want that. He deceived them, much like people deceive children today. How many of you have ever heard somebody say something like, kids are going to be exposed to this anyway. You may as well expose them to it now. That makes me, so, I'm sorry if it sounded angry when it came out, but it makes me angry when I hear people say, well, they're going to do it anyway. They're already doing it. I'm sorry. That just, it makes me, it boils my blood. Kids are going to see this on television. Kids are going to see this in video games. What's the big deal? They already see this stuff. Let me tell you what the big deal is. The big deal is that because of that attitude, we have girls who are just hitting puberty that are finding themselves pregnant. We have kids that are bringing guns into school because of that attitude of, well, they're going to do it anyway. They're going to learn it anyway. We may as well let them go ahead and learn it or do it or experience it. This is why we have so many kids today that are finding themselves with emotional and mental health issues because we are pushing on them things that they have no business knowing. And again, I apologize, but it makes me angry. I work in a school, and I see these things. I see the mental health issues and the emotional health issues every day, and I can't help but thinking, what are these parents teaching their children? And what they're doing is they're not teaching their children. They're listening to the lie that says, you may as well let them do it anyway because they're already doing it. Kids are already doing this, so you may as well just let them do whatever they're going to do. That is not how God intended it. That is not how God designed it. God is our architect, and he designed people whose spiritual houses should have been strong. And Satan came in and eroded the foundation of trusting God. He eroded the foundation of trusting that God would provide for us, that God would love us, that God would give us instruction when we were ready. And he said, no, you're going to do it anyway. You're going to learn it anyway. You may as well learn it now. It doesn't matter if you're ready or not. And he eroded that foundation. And our spiritual houses were obliterated. Thankfully, the architect did not give up on his design. The architect knew that he still had this perfect design for spiritual houses of strength and light. And he even knew that Satan would tempt us to stop trusting him. And so his plan included a plan to restore the foundation. 
And that plan was his son, Jesus Christ. In Genesis 3, God makes a declaration against the serpent. He tells him in Genesis 3.14 the consequences of his actions. He says, you're going to crawl around on the belly all the time. You're going to eat dust all the days of your life. You're going to be lower than all of the animals of the entire earth. Those were the physical things that happened to the physical serpent. Then he went to the spiritual and in Genesis chapter 3, verse 15, he said, I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. And we believe that this is the first time that God shares his plan for the reversal of the effects of sin through the birth, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. And we can see this connection clearly if we flip over to the New Testament and we look at what is written in John chapter 1. In John 1, starting in verse 1, we read, In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God, and all things were made through Him. And without Him was not anything made that was made. In Him was life. And the life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. And the word that John is talking about here is Jesus. And as we read through the book of John, in just that first chapter, we see who he's talking about. He's talking about Jesus Christ. And you remember a few minutes ago when we talked about God separating spiritual light and spiritual darkness? The spiritual light that God created in humans originally. When Jesus became human, he was the perfection of that spiritual house. He was the spiritual light that God created when he created Adam. That's what he brought with him. In him was life, and the life was the light of men. And John continues in verses uh, 12 and 13. But to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God, who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. This is the fulfillment of the architect's plan to restore the foundation of our spiritual lives. Jesus Christ. John later says that grace and truth came through Jesus Christ and that we receive grace upon grace upon grace upon grace. That means that we receive forgiveness for our sins through Jesus Christ and the blood that he shed on the cross. We receive eternal life through his resurrection and his defeat of death when he rose from the dead. And when that happens, when we make that decision to receive forgiveness, to receive that grace and that truth, we decide to become a disciple of Jesus Christ. We decide to build our lives on the foundation of Christ's instruction. Remember last week we said, if you do and say the things that I have taught you, you are building your house on the rock. And that's what we're talking about here. 
We are talking about building our lives on Jesus Christ. But Pastor Joe, Jesus Christ isn't really here anymore. He ascended to heaven. All we got is the Bible. What are we supposed to do? Well, that's not true. We don't just have the Bible. God didn't just leave us alone to figure out some words on a page. He didn't leave us to figure out how to build our own spiritual house. In John chapter 14, Jesus tells us we're going to have help. John 14, verses 15 to 17 says, If you love me, you will keep my commandments, and I will ask the Father, and he will give you another helper to be with you forever. Even the Spirit of truth, whom the world cannot receive because it neither sees him nor knows him. Think about what that means just for a second. The world cannot receive truth because it cannot see it or know it unless the helper helps them. You know him for he dwells with you and will be in you. You know, as people say, we're building a house. How many of you have ever said that when you're building it? Yep, we're building a house. No, you're not. You're having a house built. Most of the time, somebody else is building the house, right? Except for Glenn. Glenn probably built his own house. But the house gets built by the contractor, right? The contractor makes arrangements for every worker, everything, every material to be brought in to build the house. And he or she is responsible for the daily operations of that building. They're ensuring that everything is done right. Everything is done what they call up to code, right? Done according to the established protocol. The Holy Spirit is our spiritual contractor. We just read in John chapter 14 that Jesus asks the Father, the architect, to send the Spirit as the helper. And what is he going to be helping with? Jesus tells us in uh, 14, 26. But the helper, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, he will teach you all things and bring to remembrance all that I have said to you. On a daily basis, the Holy Spirit is determining what materials you need to build your spiritual house. On a daily basis, the Holy Spirit is determining who will help you build that spiritual house. Who has a gift of the Holy Spirit that will help you become stronger, that will help you become this spiritual house that God has planned for you? Spirit lives in us when we become followers of Jesus Christ. How many of you knew that the Holy Spirit, if you asked God's forgiveness and repented of your sins, that the Holy Spirit now lives within you every second of the day? He's there to see that we're using the right materials to build our spiritual lives. And He's there to tell us if our materials are faulty. He's like the inspector. 
Paul tells us in 1 Corinthians 3 that we are God's building and that Jesus Christ is the foundation of that building. And then in verse 12 of chapter 3, he says this. Now, if anyone builds on the foundation with gold, silver, precious stones, wood, hay, straw, each one's work will become manifest for the day will disclose it because it will be revealed by fire and the fire will test what sort of work each one has done. Those of you who have not been in church for a while or have not been, in, been Christians for a while, you might not know Acts chapter 2. But in Acts chapter 2, the Holy Spirit falls upon all of those who believe in Jesus Christ. And do you know what form the Holy Spirit takes? Tongues of fire. When Paul writes that it will be revealed by fire, it will be revealed by the truth of the Holy Spirit. Whether you are using good materials to build your spiritual house. If we don't allow the Holy Spirit to tell us what materials to use, then we use our own judgment and our own materials. And we all know how that works out sometimes. Paul calls these wood, hay, and stubble. Anybody know the story of the three little pigs? <laughs> Nobody knows this, uh, this story of three little pigs right here. Three little pigs. Three little pigs, they want to move out of their mom's basement, finally. And mom said, thank you. They go off, they build houses for themselves. First, brig, uh, first pig uses straw. Second pig uses sticks or wood. Third pig uses bricks and mortar. And what happens? Big bad wolf comes along. <laughs> Wants a snack. Comes to the straw house. Tells the pig to come out. Pig says no. Wolf huffs and puffs, blows that straw house down to the ground. Pig runs to his brother's house, the stick house. Same thing happens. Wolf says come out, they say no. He huffs and he puffs. He blows that stick house to the ground destroys it. They run to the third pig's house. House made of brick and mortar. Strong, strong house. Same thing happens. Come out. They say no. Wolf huffs and he puffs. And then he puffs and he huffs because apparently that's how it works. <laughs> house didn't fall down. All of these pigs built houses. They looked like houses, right? Had walls, they had a roof, windows, doors. But do you remember why the first two pigs decided to use straw and sticks to build their houses? Anybody remember that story? They did it because they just wanted to finish the house. They didn't really care about the house. They just wanted to finish so they could go off and play soccer. I don't know. Soccer just came to my mind. They went off. They wanted to have fun. They didn't want to have to deal with the house. Right? Wolf comes. Winds come, house falls over. And to borrow the words of Jesus in Matthew 7:27, great was the fall of those houses. 
And people build their spiritual houses just like those first two little pigs. They hear the gospel, they learn about God's grace and mercy, and they say, that's a good idea. I'll have God forgive me and I'll go to heaven. And they say the prayer. And then they're done. They want to go and they want to have fun. They don't really repent. They don't really learn how to live a Christ-centered life. What they do is they find life verses. And they take tourist mission trips that don't actually really help anybody, but they make a lot of money for the mission tourist people. They slip that five bucks in the uh, offering every once in a while because they got to do their, their giving duty. And they get to feel good about their spiritual house. Look at me, look at my house, isn't it beautiful? Dietrich Bonhoeffer was a German pastor and theologian who died uh, two or three days before American troops liberated the concentration camp in Flossenburg, Germany. He was actually ordered to be killed so that the Americans couldn't rescue the people that were there. Bonhoeffer was also something of a spy. Some of you might have heard of something called Operation Valkyrie. Bonhoeffer was a part of that. He was a spy trying to take down and assassinate Adolf Hitler. And in 1937, Bonhoeffer wrote a book which he titled Nachfolge, German for the act of following. In English, it's called The Cost of Discipleship. And in this book, he gives a definition of what he calls cheap grace. Cheap grace is the preaching of forgiveness without repentance. Baptism without church discipline. Communion without confession. Cheap grace is grace without discipleship. Grace without the cross. Grace without Jesus Christ. And he goes on to say that cheap grace is the deadly enemy of the church. And when we build our houses like the first two little pigs with wood and hay and stubble, when we build our houses, our spiritual houses, with feel-good-about-yourself preaching, doing our churchly duty for two hours a week so that we can go off and sin the other 166 hours of the week and not have to really worry about it because, hey, God's going to forgive me again. We're saying Jesus Christ and his life, his death, his resurrection mean nothing. That's what we're saying. And when the spiritual storms come and we are tested, when calamity strikes our lives, our spiritual houses will fall and they will fall hard. And do you know why most people leave the Christian faith behind? Because of cheap grace. Because they don't learn about who Jesus Christ is and what he expects. One atheist in his blog that I was reading this week while I was preparing for this sermon, he said, I did not focus much on Jesus. I never accepted Jesus Christ as my Savior. I was given very little Christianity to go on. I was a Christian because my parents were Christians. 
He speaks of learning to pray in a way that was never not selfish. I know that's uh, my English teachers out there, I apologize. But he says, I made hundreds of prayers for others, but I never once offered my life, my overall happiness, or anything else that I cherished too greatly for those people to, for whom I was praying. He tells of the moment that he became an atheist. He writes several paragraphs. I'm not going to read them all for you. He basically says he's reading a story about Moses going into a town to spread the word of God, and when he's rejected, God, in a fit of rage, sets fire to the town. And Moses then pleads for the life of the people and the town, and God stops his attack. Now, I could be wrong, and if I am, please, somebody tell me. But I don't recall ever hearing that story or reading that story in the Bible. And I've read through the Bible a few times. I Googled it. I was like, what am I missing? And I did like 18 different Google searches, matching up different things, and I could never find a story where Moses went to teach the word of God in a town, and the town was set on fire by God because he was angry, and then Moses told him to stop, and God stopped. I couldn't find it anywhere. If you know that story, please come up to me after church. Actually, you know what? Stand up right now and tell me the, the passage where this happens, because I don't want to be wrong, but I don't think I am. But that story, he literally says, this is the story that I read in the Bible that caused me to be an atheist. And the only thing I could think, and I wish he had a comment section, because the only thing I could think was, what Bible are you reading? Now, it's possible it could have been the Apocrypha. It's possible it could have been some story about the Bible. But if this is what you're basing your faith on, if this is what caused you to become an atheist, you got to be set right. Personally, I don't think that was his reason. I think that was his excuse. But still, there are so many people sitting in churches today that know nothing of Jesus Christ. They know nothing of the Holy Spirit. They know nothing of Scripture except for their life verse. Or what people point out to them as these isolated incidents where God is the most horrible creature ever created, ever. They don't know Scripture. They don't know Jesus Christ. They're building their houses with cheap materials. And those houses are falling down. The Holy Spirit wants us to build our houses with strong materials. The highest quality materials. The materials that God provides. And what are those materials? That's what we're going to talk about next week. This morning, though, I want you to reflect on how you're building your spiritual house. Because I had to do a lot of reflecting about how I was building mine while I was writing this sermon. Are we relying on ourselves? 
Are we relying on what other people tell us? Or are we relying on the contractor, the Holy Spirit, who holds the blueprint, the plan that the architect has created, and who knows every inch of our spiritual house? I want you to reflect on that this week. But in the meantime, would you pray with me? Heavenly Father, we thank you so much for today. Father, we thank you for your gift of grace and mercy. We thank you for the gift of truth that is the Holy Spirit. Father, we thank you for your plan to bring us to relationship with you. And that you didn't scrap that plan or give it up just because we didn't use it. Thank you for giving us your son, Jesus Christ, to rebuild our foundations. Father, help us to reflect on our own spiritual lives. Help us to hear from the Holy Spirit about the materials that we're using. Help us to use good materials. Father, I thank you for the moms that are here, for the moms that have passed on, for the moms who never got to be moms. Pray that you would be with them, bless them. Help them to build their spiritual houses strong so that they can help their children also build their houses. We pray these things in the name of Jesus Christ, our Savior. Amen. Once more, I want to wish all of the mothers, grandmothers, mothers who want to be mothers, a happy Mother's Day. Pray that you will continue to grow in the Lord, that you will continue to be the influence that God wants you to be on your children. Men, take care of these women. These women are crucial to the lives of your children. God bless you this week.